Hello and welcome to the 12th episode in our series of Commercial Litigation Update podcasts. I'm Anna Pertoldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbis Smith Freehills. Presenting this podcast with me is, as usual, Maura McIntosh, who's a professional support consultant in the litigation team. And we also have joining us today, James Robson, who is a senior associate in the disputes team. In this edition, Maura will outline some recent cases on witness evidence, privilege, and the dangers of filing court documents on the last day for service. Then I'll cover some decisions on jurisdiction. And finally, James will look at a few recent cases where the courts have had to interpret force majeure and material adverse change clauses. So I'll hand over to Maura to kick us off. Thanks, Anna. I'm going to start off with witness evidence, as there's been another decision applying the new requirements for trial witness statements that were introduced last April. Now, this is the case of Prime London Holdings 11 and Thurlow Lodge, which is a dispute about access to land. It's similar to previous cases I've spoken about on this podcast in that the court required certain passages to be deleted from a witness statement where they failed to comply with the rules, in particular because they included argument and commentary on documents, neither of which should be included in a witness statement under the new regime. The point I think is interesting in this case is that the court was critical of both parties, the party that failed to comply with the rules, obviously, but also the other party for its delay in raising concerns about the statement and for failing to identify those concerns in detail when it did raise the matter. Now, the delay in question was between the 17th of December when the statement was served and the 4th of January when the point was first raised. And the court was not sympathetic to excuses that people were off celebrating Christmas. So I think that shows quite how strict the courts may be on the timing point, though it is relevant to note that the trial was due to start in mid-January in this case. So maybe that helps explain the need for particular urgency. But the obvious message is to raise any concerns regarding compliance very promptly. The other point is that when concerns are raised, they should be raised with the party serving the statement in the first instance in reasonable detail with a view to agreeing a revised version of the statement and only if that's not possible should the court be asked to assist. The next case I want to look at is Ideal Shopping and MasterCard, which highlights a short practical point about filing and serving claim forms. These days, a claim form has to be filed electronically through the court's online CE file system, where a party is legally represented anyway. And the claim form is not sealed until it's accepted by the court, which may not be on the day it's actually filed using that system. Now, under the rules, if there's a delay in the court sealing the claim form, it's still treated as having been issued on the day that it's filed and the fee is paid. So effectively, the seal will be backdated. But that doesn't necessarily help, as it's the sealed version that needs to be served on the defendant. So that means that if you file the claim electronically on the last day for service and it's not accepted and sealed straight away, you may then be out of time for serving the claim form. And that's what happened in this case where the claimant actually served an unsealed copy of the claim form, since they didn't have the sealed version, on the last day for service. And the High Court and Court of Appeal both held that service could not be validated under CPR 3.10, which allows the court to remedy procedural errors. So the short message is if you're coming up against a deadline for service, 
particularly if limitation is also an issue. Make sure that your lawyers can finalise and file the claim form in good time to allow for any delay in the court's processes in accepting and sealing the claim. Or, or if that can't happen, then seek an extension from the defendant or the court, because otherwise you may miss the boat. The last case I want to mention is Candy and Bosch, which is about the iniquity exception to legal professional privilege, which of course means that there is no privilege in a communication made in furtherance of a crime, fraud or iniquity. The essential point from this decision is that it's not sufficient to lose the protection of privilege that a party has put forward a false account of events and for that purpose has deceived their solicitor in the court. If that were the case, then defendants to fraud claims, I think, would regularly lose the protection of privilege. So there has to be something more than that. There has to be an abuse of the solicitor-client relationship, which takes the matter outside the normal scope of a professional engagement. That's easy to say, but maybe not so easy to apply as a test. On the facts of this case, the court said it was clear that the test wasn't met and so privilege was not lost. But just to give a flavour from previous case law, it has been found to be met, for example, where a party had given perjured evidence, had forged documents and suppressed relevant evidence. So uh, the bottom line is it will be a matter of fact and degree in each case as to whether the protection of privilege is lost. Thanks, Maura. So turning to jurisdiction... The first case I want to talk about is the Suriname Airways case, which is about when a defendant will be found to have submitted to the English court's jurisdiction so that it can no longer bring a jurisdiction challenge. Now, that challenge might be on the basis that court has no jurisdiction under conflict of laws rules or shouldn't exercise any jurisdiction it has, or, as in the Suriname case, on the basis that proceedings have not been served correctly. The High Court in this case found that the defendant had submitted and therefore could no longer challenge jurisdiction by applying for an extension of time for service of a defence. Now, this was in circumstances where it had indicated an intention to defend the proceedings in the acknowledgement of service. So it had ticked that box on the form rather than the intending to challenge jurisdiction box and it hadn't reserved its rights to challenge jurisdiction before the application was made. Recent cases, it's fair to say, have tended to find that there has been no submission even where defendants have taken part in some way in proceedings. I covered one of them in our last podcast, PJSC Bank and Chivago, where the High Court found the defendant hadn't submitted to the jurisdiction by applying to strike out the claim against him at the same time as challenging jurisdiction. Another more recent case in similar vein is Deposit Guarantee Fund for Individuals and Bank Frick. In that case, the High Court rejected an argument that there had been submission to the jurisdiction where a party sought to have a summary judgment application heard before an application to stay the court proceedings in favour of arbitration. The Suriname case, though, underlines the point I made last time, that taking any step in the proceedings is dangerous and best avoided if you can. If you can't avoid it, make sure that you make it clear throughout that you're challenging jurisdiction as that will go a long way towards reducing the risk of submission. 
In PGSC, challenging jurisdiction at the same time as applying to strike out meant there was no unequivocal conduct showing an intention to litigate here. In the Deposit Guarantee Fund case, it was key that the summary judgment application was made on a, a conditional basis. So, in other words, it would only take effect in the event that the challenge to the jurisdiction was unsuccessful. And that was the case regardless of the order in which the applications were heard. The final case I want to cover is Apollo Ventures Co Limited and Manchanda. In this case, the High Court granted a stay of English proceedings on the basis that the Thai courts were the more appropriate forum to determine the dispute. And that stay was granted even though the English proceedings had begun five years earlier. The defendant, Mr Manchanda, had unsuccessfully challenged jurisdiction when the proceedings began and had subsequently submitted to the jurisdiction by serving a defence. The reason the stay was granted was that there had been a change in circumstances. The claims against the other defendants had been struck out when the claimant failed to provide security for costs. So Mr Manchanda was the only remaining defendant in the English action. That meant that there was no longer a risk of inconsistent judgments against different defendants in different jurisdictions, which had been a key consideration when jurisdiction was challenged originally. So what this case shows is that it is possible to apply for a stay of English proceedings a considerable time after the proceedings have begun if circumstances have changed. Of course, a stay is only likely to be granted in unusual circumstances. In this case, the English proceedings hadn't progressed very far in the five years, and there were proceedings in Thailand which were much further advanced, in which the claims against all the defendants could be determined. That's it from me. I'll now hand over to James. Thanks, Anna. I'm going to look at three cases now in which the courts have interpreted force majeure and material adverse change clauses. These clauses generated a lot of interest at the beginning of the pandemic in particular, as parties looked to see whether they could avoid obligations or even entire contracts, which they either couldn't perform or didn't want to perform. It is interesting then to see that some of those cases are now beginning to trickle down uh, and result in reported decisions. The first case is Nordnapfa uh, and Newstream, which was about the sale of diesel. And in fact, this one didn't relate to the pandemic, and these issues can of course arise in other contexts. The contract provided for an advance payment and included a force majeure clause excusing performance in certain circumstances. Uh, including interference with supplies where that was not within the seller's control. The buyer paid an advance of some $16 million in accordance with the contract, but before delivery was due, the seller informed the buyer of a force majeure event, which delayed delivery, and ultimately the diesel was not delivered. The buyer terminated the contract, as it was entitled to do, and sought repayment of the advance under a clause in the contract, which provided that on termination, nothing herein shall impair, those are the words in the contract, 
the seller's obligations to repay the advance if delivery was prevented by force majeure. The Commercial Court granted summary judgment in favour of the buyer and the Court of Appeal recently upheld that decision. It interpreted the clause as providing a positive obligation to repay. The fact that the clause started off with those words I quoted earlier, nothing herein shall impair the obligation, that didn't mean it couldn't create that obligation. And the seller's alternative interpretation would mean that the whole clause was simply redundant. The buyer's interpretation was also supported by the wider commercial context, which courts will pay attention to in this sort of case. And the court said that in the context of a contract for the sale of goods, it would be surprising not to find a provision requiring repayment of an advance in the event of non-delivery, because quite simply no reasonable buyer would put their advance uh, at that sort of risk. Now, now, obviously, each case will turn on its facts, but I think that gives quite a strong steer as to the court's likely starting point in interpreting a sale of goods contract, particularly where there may be said to be some ambiguity regarding whether or when an advance must be repaid. The key point, of course, is to make sure there's no ambiguity in the first place, and the best way to avoid finding yourself in this situation is for the contract to be absolutely clear as to the circumstances in which an advance payment may be retained or, or has to be repaid, whether that's in the event of force majeure or otherwise. The second case I want to cover is the Premier League and PP Live Sports International. This case concerned a contract for the rights to broadcast Premier League matches in China. And it started with the 2019-20 season, which, as well as seeing Newcastle finish a glorious 13th in the league, was also hugely disrupted due to COVID. And the contract contained a warranty that the format of the competition would not undergo any fundamental change, which would have a material adverse effect on the licensee's exercise of the contracted right. And the question for the court was whether that clause had been triggered, whether there had been a fundamental change uh, in circumstances where the Premier League matches were suspended from March to June and uh, when the play resumed, of course, it was to a much compressed timetable and with matches uh, being played in empty stadiums. The Commercial Court, another summary judgment case, granted summary judgment for the Premier League on the basis that the clause was not triggered because the contract for its operation, that is to say a fundamental change in the format of the competition, had not been met. The decision really turned on what was meant by the phrase, the format of the competition. And the court held that the phrase did not include when matches were played or whether there were fans present. Its decision was in part influenced by uh, some examples of fundamental change which were actually given in the contract. Those included things like a reduction in the number of football clubs and the competition ceasing to be the Premier League competition played between professional clubs in England and Wales. 
in the court's view, the changes in comparison to those examples were relatively minor. Changes to kickoff times, for example. That sort of thing just didn't qualify as a, as a change to the format of the competition. So the court didn't even need to go on to consider the next question, which is whether the changes had a material adverse effect on the exercise of the contracted rights. Though it said the broadcaster would have had a realistic prospect of success on that issue. So on that issue alone, it would not have granted summary judgment. I think the key point really from this decision is that a material adverse change clause won't protect you no matter how adverse the events that have occurred if the conditions for the clause to bite are not met. So uh, uh, the advice there then is to think carefully about what those uh, triggers, what the circumstances should be in which that clause will bite. Although obviously that's difficult when by definition the clause is meant to cater for uh, unforeseen circumstances. The last case I'll mention is another case about the disruption the pandemic caused to sports events. This time the European Rugby Championships in 2020. The case is called European Professional Club Rugby and RDA and it's a force majeure case. It turned on the construction of, of a force majeure clause which allowed termination if a force majeure event, uh, as defined in the agreement, prevented, hindered or delayed performance of a party's obligation for a continuous period of more than 60 days. Now, what was interesting actually here is that it was common ground that the pandemic qualified as a force majeure event. I know when I was looking at this uh, back in 2020, often that was not at all clear, but here it was. The definition of the term referred expressly to epidemic, and in any event, it was drafted non-exhaustively to cover circumstances beyond a party's reasonable control. That gives quite an interesting contrast to the Premier League case I spoke about a minute ago, because in that case, there was also a force majeure clause, but it was drafted a lot more restrictively, and neither party actually sought to rely on force majeure at all. So in the rugby case then, the dispute was not about whether there had been a force majeure event per se, but about whether it prevented performance and whether the broadcaster could terminate as a result. And the court found that it could terminate. Unlike in the Premier League case, here there was a clear failure to perform because essentially the contract required the final stages of the competition to be made available for broadcast before the season ended in June 2020. And in fact, those matches weren't played until the beginning of the following season uh, in autumn 2020. Interestingly, the court rejected an argument that the right to terminate was not triggered because the party in breach had not served a notice expressly notifying force majeure. And again, when, when I was looking at this back in 2020, a lot of attention was on the notification provisions relating to force majeure to make sure that you had properly complied with those uh, uh, provisions. But here, the court said actually it would make no sense for the right to terminate to be dependent on the party in breach having served notice of force majeure. Uh, all that was required, the court said, was that the force majeure event had in fact prevented performance for at least uh, 60 days. So 
it's interesting to have a case in which the court has found that a commercial contract could be terminated for force majeure in light of the pandemic. I began by saying that uh, this is uh, the first trickle of cases relating to force majeure and material adverse change that we're beginning to see in, in, in following the pandemic. And this, I am sure, won't be the last decision we see, although obviously each case turns not only on the particular fact, but also I think these cases show the particular wording of the clause in question. And again, uh, my own experience tells me that whilst there's some commonality across false majeure clauses, each one has its own particular peculiarities and those will be required to be interpreted by the court. Thank you, James Mora, and to all of you for listening. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. We'll be back with another update in a couple of months.